Hey, welcome to Halfway Decent, the Halfway Decent podcast about art history. I'm Mike. And I'm Sarah. And this is episode three. We've Yay. made it we made it to three so far. We'll see how long it goes. Um, this episode today is brought to you by um, a dry martini and a glass of wine. Oh boy. Uh, so Sarah, what do we got going today? Today, uh, it's going to be a little bit different than our last few um, we are going to be talking about Jan van Eyck. Sure. So, um, before, well, for those of you who want to Google along with us, Jan van Eyck, first name Jan, J-A-N, V-A-N, E-Y-C-K, Jan van Eyck. Check. All right. Um, Michael. Hey, you know what else you could do? You can probably look at the title of this podcast and probably tells you how to spell that name. Also that. That's good. Perfect. That's fair. Moving on. Go on. <laughs> Michael, what do you know about Jan van Eyck? I know nothing. Yeah? Absolutely nothing. Uh, you told me that peek behind the curtain. Uh, she, Sarah told me we were doing this artist, and I was like, oh, yeah. No idea. Yeah. Zero, zero knowledge of what this guy does. I mean, that's good. Um, but part of why I wanted to cover Van Eyck is that when we're talking about art history, the broad art history, um, Jan Van Eyck is one of the first individual artists that we know of. Not that he's the first, but... Um, so art history, when you're studying it, it starts with typically like the cave paintings, right? Sure, yeah. And then you go on to like, um, things of necessity or like objects of worship. Um, and then from there, it usually goes into like religious works. Sure. And a lot of those are not attributed to an individual. It's not like the cave painters were signing their work, yeah. right? Because they probably had practical applications or, rather than just being aesthetic. Or their names were like Grunt and <laughs> other Grunt. <laughs> this my hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So um, Jan van Eyck is, it, in, in terms of like what your art history textbook is going to look like, it's, he's, his is one of the first actual names that you're gonna see gotcha um he was born in 1390 so we don't have a whole lot of information about his actual life um so that's why this episode is going to feel a little bit different because it's going to be a little bit less biography and more talking about specifically his work but hopefully you'll kind of get to know the artist through his art so all you art nerds out there, hold on to your butts. It's going to get <laughs> real arty. Yeah, actually, this is going to be like probably the artiest <laughs> episode yet. <laughs> all right, you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so like I said, um, because he lived a hot minute ago, um, we don't know a whole lot about who he is and where he comes from. There's not documentation so um we know he was probably born in Maasek, belgium 
I don't know. And um, was of the gentry class. The gentry class. What's that mean? Well, the gentry um, were kind of like well-born, like of the sort of nobility, but not necessarily a noble. So not, definitely not like a high or medium class. Like high class, but not necessarily royalty. Royalty. Gotcha. Yeah. There you go. So um, he had two brothers. He actually also had a sister, but I don't have really any information about his sister, except that her name was Margaret. Um, But he had an older brother named Hubert. Hi, Margaret. (laughs) Shout out to Margaret. He had an older brother named Hubert, um, and they, it's thought that he taught Jan about art and how to be a painter. Oh, nice. And then he had a younger brother who is thought to have taken over Jan's workshop after he died. So that's... His art workshop? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, there's kind of a lot of information that you can dig into, and I kind of didn't follow all of it, but he was a court painter. So he painted for John of Bavaria, who was the ruler of Holland, from 1422 to 1424. And then he was a painter in in Bruges uh, to Philip the Good, who was the Duke of Burgundy. Um, and that was from 1425 until 1441. Sorry. And there's, I don't know, a lot of things with the politics of like, oh, this duke did this and he controlled the... I just didn't... Not that interesting. Like, I like art history. Not that And I like history in the lens of art history, but history itself, oh, I'm not always good with it. Right. So, like, me, I'm more of a history guy, and I enjoy it because you can look at, like, the cyclical nature of history, whereas this is more of just the art and what influenced the art and less about the guys he was working for sure right but so the fact that he was a court appointed court employed painter meant that he had unusually high social standing for a painter um although i did read somewhere that um he would have basically been on par with like the person who made the clothes for royalty like he was high he was like in the court but like He wasn't, like, sitting next to the king or anything, you know. So we know he was literate, um, and a lot of the aspects of his work were self-promotional. For example, you see um, he signed and dated a lot of his paintings, which was not something that was really done. I mean, kind of like we were just talking about, there weren't a lot of people that were artists that were signing their works. Um, So that kind of gained him notoriety because of that. Sure, if if you have stuff out there that has your name on it, more people will know you versus if you don't have your name on stuff, that makes sense. Yeah, he was part of what is referred to as the Northern Renaissance. So typically when we're talking about the sort of regular Renaissance, it's all happening in Italy. Oh, gotcha. Um, so this is the Northern Renaissance. So that's Northern part of Europe, Netherlands, Belgium, France part of germany like the north part of europe yeah but <laughs> shut up anyway um and so one thing that uh really defined 
the Northern Renaissance is the use of oils, oil paint. So the Southern Renaissance was more a different kind of paint? No. Just nor- the Northern Renaissance from the paint or from the styles that came before that. The Italian Renaissance also. All of the Renaissance used gotcha. oil. Okay. M- moving on. Uh, so <laughs> previously, tempera paint is what was used for everything. And that's an egg-based paint. And it's very opaque and very matte and dries very quickly. So if you're trying to layer things up, it one layer would just block out the next one. So you don't get those levels like you do with oil. So when they were started embracing oil painting, um, it had a slow drying time and meant that you could work with it for a while and you could blend it, which was not something that you could do easily with temper paint. And um, in the blending, you could basically eliminate brush strokes if you wanted to. Um, they're translucent, so you could build up the colors and you can create richer, more realistic tones. And one historian, I don't have his name, but he reported that uh, Van Eyck actually invented oil painting, which is not true, but because of the way he elevated the medium, you could almost, you could understand why that was something that was said. So it's kind of like... um... The Michael Jordan of basketball. Where yeah. Like he, he didn't invent the game of basketball, but he right. kind of reinvented right. you know, yeah. the style. Yeah, gotcha. that's a good way to, to think of it. Um, All you sports nerds out there. There you go. Um, he was the first Netherlandish artist to achieve international fame. And um, j- this was just kind of a quick note that I couldn't really fit in anywhere else. Um, he used his brushes. Some of his brushes were so fine that they only had like two or three hairs. So that's the kind of detail we're about to talk about. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and there's this was a quote from something that I read. It said, the result is a visual feast. And I like that. Yeah. Eat with your eyes. Yeah. Okay. So the first piece of art that we're going to talk about is called... Oh, and we're kind of going to go through these almost in backwards order. Um his most famous artwork is like his first famous artwork. So we're kind of almost going to run in backwards order, but stick with me. So the first one we're going to talk about is man in a red turban. And that was painted in 1433. And this is actually thought to be a self portrait of the artist. We don't know for sure, but, um, it is the first painting in a thousand years where the subject looks directly at the viewer. And that's one of the reasons why they think it might be a self-portrait. Because if you're looking at a mirror, the only way to paint yourself is face forward. You know, you can't paint yourself from the side if you're looking in the mirror unless you've got really good periphery vision or something. I could have done it. I of have course. great peripheral vision. I mean, that's true, but... Um, so his gaze is level and composed and he has a three quarter head pose is what that's called. So you can see three quarters of the face. Um, and if you would actually go and see this painting, uh, he has those 
like the the haunted house eyes that follow you wherever you go yeah <laughs> so sarah made me a lovely little uh follow along so i don't have to do a bunch of clicking and typing as we record this so i'm looking at it and it also makes sense because you said it was later in his career that he made this right yeah uh well ish because it looks like a grumpy old man is what i'm getting at well i mean it's only a couple years after the first one that we're talking about oh jeez. So. i mean it took a long time to get to be an, a master but still he looks like a grumpy old man he might be he might be who knows okay. All right. So his style, as you can tell from this portrait, whether it's a self-portrait or not, you can tell he worked with incredible, intricate detail. Um, You can see, I don't know if you can tell from that picture, but um, in the portrait itself, you can see facial stubble. Uh, You can see that one of his eyes is slightly bloodshot. You can see his skin is weathered and wrinkled. Um, And that's another trait that we'll we'll talk about more later but he painted people very realistically he didn't really do that kind of that idealized painting that that a lot of artists did he just painted what he saw good or bad it, it is what it is kind of a thing um another reason they think that this painting is a self-portrait is the frame itself is painted on and it says, as I can in Flemish, uh, using Greek letters. And that was his motto. He painted that on several things, several of his works. Um, and then across the bottom, it says, Jan van Eyck made me in the date. And first of all, those two are both look uh, painted to look like they were carved into the frame. Hmm. So that's just another level of depth. Yeah. Um, but as I can is kind of like saying like, uh, as good as I could do. But a lot of historian or a lot of scholars think that that's sort of kind of like a false humility, like, Oh, Oh, this old thing kind of a thing. (laughs) Like it's very intricate and very realistic. So to say like, Oh, this is as good as I can do. is kind of like, (laughs) A wink and a nod to the viewer. But, I mean, I'm kind of on his team in this one because I'm the same way where people compliment the work I do and it's hard for me to see my own talent. I get it. Sure. But I guess uh, what I read is that as I can in Flemish, his the language he wrote it in, um, the way it's written out can also be read as Ike can so it's kind of like a pun too with his name so he's he is an old like kind of dad joke kind of guy (laughs) yeah that's that's kind of what i get from it um and so another reason um that they think that this might be a self-portrait is that figures with similar headwear are found in several other paintings that he's done um, so there will be like a figure that appears sort of in the background or elsewhere. And, um, a lot of scholars think like, Ooh, there's a guy in the turban. That's probably Van Eyck. So he's kind of like Stanley popping into all these Marvel <laughs> yeah, movies. A little bit, a little bit like <laughs> that. He's yeah. He's putting himself into these paintings. Yeah. Kind of a where's Waldo of <laughs> artists. <laughs> 
found him right there, turban. Oh, and then this is just a fun fact that um, what he's wearing on his head is not actually a turban. It's called a chaperon, spelled just like chaperone without the E. You know what it looks like? So, for those of you who don't know, my lovely wife, she has very curly hair, and she puts it up in a shirt and ties it. I can't explain to you how it looks, but when you see this photo, or this photo, this painting that Van Eyck did. I mean, it's almost a photo. That's what it is. (laughs) That looks like what you have on top of your head. Okay, so a chaperon is actually, if you see um, kind of hats from the Middle Ages, it's almost kind of like a sort of a Middle Ages beanie kind of a thing. It usually kind of has like fabric, a hood that kind of floats down, but he just has it tied up. And so it looks like a turban, but it's not. Um, And Agree to disagree. Okay, but they say that this would have been an appropriate headwear for his class and, like, his job. So, again, these are all reasons why they think this is a painting of Van Eyck himself. That makes sense. Yeah. So, then we're going to move to his probably next most famous work, which is the portrait of Arnold Feeney, which was painted the, the year after... The man in the red turban. So not exactly, we're not exactly going backwards order, but. I for sure thought you were going to say Arnold Palmer. Don't know why. <laughs> Wouldn't make any sense no. in this scenario. No. This is just a fun fact that I realized. I have three different art history textbooks. And this painting uh, is a full page image on all in all three of them. So uh, if you get a chance, I would encourage you to. You can just look up the name Arnolfini. You don't even have to type Van Eyck's name with it. Just A-R-N-O-L-F-I-N-I. And um, I'm sure that'll get you this this image. Um, so the first thing I would like to point out is that the man uh, is actually Vladimir Putin. Yeah, he is. No, it's not. But, but it definitely could be. Yeah, he's like the distant great great grandfather of Vladimir Putin. The Italian great great grandfather of Old Pooty Putin. <laughs> anyway, um, so this is sometimes referred to as the uh, Arnolfini marriage portrait, and so it is thought to be Giovanni Arnolfini, who is a merchant. Merchant, sorry, and. Uh, his wife, Giovanna Simani. Sinami? I don't know how to say her name. Salami. Yes, exactly. Uh, and that this is a wedding or engagement portrait. Um, and something about Van Eyck, especially as you will read if you look at any art history textbooks, is that a lot of his works are filled with symbolism and iconography. Um, and so, which I understand is something that can kind of feel, uh, hard to relate to for someone who is just kind of starting to dip their toes into this world. It kind of feels like a barrier to entry. It's like you almost have to know the time period and get what he's talking about to be able to understand his paintings. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, I mean... If it makes you feel any better, as as much as a quote-unquote expert, not that I call myself that, but 
as much art history exposure as I have, um, I would not necessarily guess all of these icons that we're going to talk about that are in this, supposedly in this painting. Um, so. Well, that's, I mean, it, part of that too is, was it things he's actually said that are in there or is it like people making assumptions? Right. So we'll get there. Okay. So as you can see, it's a portrait of a man and a woman. Um, they're confirm. holding hands um, and with her hand on his um, apparently was a sign of betrothal. Back What's then. uncomfortable and awkward? Well, maybe. Um, there is a single candle uh, that is lit in the chandelier. Oh, you'll see now. Yep. And that... Uh, along with the rounded mirror in the background, are supposed to symbolize the all-seeing eye of God. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, their shoes are both removed. You can see his clogs are in the bottom left, and um, hers are kind of harder to see because they're red and they kind of blend in, but they're between the two. You can kind of see them in the background. Yep. Um, and that is supposed to be a nod to... Uh, God telling Moses to remove his shoes because he's on holy ground. Oh, so it's like holy matrimony sort of a situation. And she is wearing a green dress, which was a symbol of fertility. She's not actually pregnant, even though it Definitely kind of looks like it, it. kind of looks like yeah. it. Uh, part of that is that she's like holding the folds of her dress up in front of her, and it's like a thick. You can kind of tell from the folds that it's a thick dress. Yeah. But also, that was kind of the artistic style. And, like, it was fashionable to be kind of belly heavy at the time for a lady. That was, like, the chic thing to do. Well, back in the day, that used to be a sign of wealth is because you had the money to eat enough food to be fat, essentially. Right. Yeah, and actually, there are a lot of uh, signs of wealth in this painting. Um, like, you can see that both of their their clothes are lined in fur. She is wearing gold necklaces. They have a brass chandelier. Uh, the bed, I read, is um, possibly not a marriage bed, but a... Uh, furniture of estate is what they called it. So something that they would like display as a sign of their status in their as home. one is one to do. Right. So other things in this painting. Um, back behind him, you can see there are oranges. And number one, I read somewhere that they said that that is also a sign of fertility. Just fruit in general, you know. That doesn't make any sense, but sure, go on. Well, because if you're pregnant, you're bearing fruit. Fruit is fruit. Yeah. So there's that. But also, oranges specifically were also a sign of wealth. Because they were so foreign, it was expensive to get them. Well, good news is, Sarah, we have both oranges (laughs) and I'm overweight, so... So we are rolling in the dough, is what you're saying. So fancy. Love it. Um... So, some more symbols here um, that uh, I guess it's supposed to suggest the gender roles because she is closest to the bed and he is closest to the window in the outside world. So, 
Um, and also on her side of the portrait, there is hanging on the back, you can see um, a broom. So that's kind of like a symbol of domesticity. Um, on the bed in the background, you can kind of barely see on the finial, the top bedpost um, is St. Margaret. And she was the patron saint of childbirth. Good for her. Um, yeah. Just a few other things. There there are beads hanging um, in the back beside the mirror. And those were kind of a type of rosary. Um, so that's just a religious symbol there. Around the mirror, it's hard to see in any of the images I've seen. Um, but um, around the mirror, there are like little round uh, portraits and those are um, Christ's passion and then they say that the dog in the portrait cute little Toto looking dog yeah, uh, and he symbolizes loyalty because fidelity Fido that's like yeah. where that came from huh. actually did not know that yeah. but that makes sense yeah um, and so you'll notice above the mirror, it there's some script there, and it says Jan van Eyck was here, fourteen thirty four. Um, and so there's actually a lot of debate as to what that means. Like obviously he's been known to sign his work, but also um, some people have said that that proves that he was like there as a witness to the marriage it's almost like a witness testimony of being like, there sounds like every like middle school kid ever who writes on a desk i was here <laughs> is what it sounds I like know. Um, but i guess it makes sense and if they were if this is part of their wedding sure to be a represent uh Witness, a witness of yeah. The situation. Um, other people have uh, said that since Arnolfini was a merchant, that this was him giving his wife uh, like business rights to make business decisions in his name, and that that is also proof of that of like yes, she has he has conferred rights to her. Hmm. But here's the thing: documents have proven that. Giovanni Arnolfini, Giovanna Sinami, Salami, yeah, mm -hmm, weren't married until 1447. This is painted in 1434. And that was 13 years after the painting was created and six years after Van Eyck died. Ooh. Ooh, so what is this painting Mystery. of? Mystery. Well, as it turns out, there was another Giovanni Arnolfini that was a merchant in that town. And he, he was Giovanni Niccolo Arnolfini. And there's still some debate as to what this is because um, he was not married when this piece was created. So this is either a second wife or a memorial to, this is the theory that I like best, a memorial to his first wife who died in 1433 in childbirth. Ooh. Wow. So, if makes... you want to look at it that way. Yeah, then she is holding her stomach being pregnant. Right. Uh, the candle is only lit above the man. So that's like 
he's still life alive. exactly yeah. where hers is snuffed out uh the scenes of the passion um after his death after jesus's death are only on her side of the portrait they're like you said all the references to pregnancy the finial and all these things and the husband is in black morning morning hmm. so nobody knows that's the thing like you mentioned earlier we don't have any documents that van eyck was journaling and like oh i'm totally doing this painting and this is all the things that this means and you know different people have suggested different things yeah. but honestly we don't know it's and- just a portrait as far as we know we know that it's arnolfini we know that it's signed that jan van eyck was there but we don't know even what that part of it means. Ooh, but I forgot something. The most interesting, maybe the most interesting part of this. In interesting the, in quotes, go on. In the mirror, there are actually four figures in the back, in the reflection. In my cheat sheet, I see, I see that, excuse me. One of whom is wearing a red turban found waldo (laughs) exactly so they do think that one of those figures is van eyck he he's either kind of clever and cheeky or just kind of egotistical and thinks we're all highly of himself yeah i mean either way it's fine yeah i mean (laughs) either way he's there either way i like him okay yet to be determined I want to hear the whole thing okay. before I make any judgments. All right. All right. So then we're going to move from there to his most famous piece, which is the Ghent altarpiece. So this was done, it was completed in 1432 and is considered by some people to be the most important painting in art history, which might be heavy-handed. Can you imagine, though, because you said this was one of his first pieces he's, yeah. he did. Yeah. That's like <laughs> peaking early. <laughs> if our first episode, no. right. just kidding. Yeah, uh, but yeah, like your your first. Well, I don't know. I can't even think of a good uh, a good representation of that because in sports, you know, you get rookies on teams that win championships. Patrick Mahomes, for instance, if you guys are football fans and happen to pay attention to the Super Bowl I'm a couple so weeks done ago. With this. Or, uh, whatever. I guess it'd be more appropriate in, like, um, tennis, where it's a solo sport. Or a solo sport where a rookie who has no business wins a major championship. I mean... It's crazy. I'm I, the first... It's, yeah, it's hard to compare it to anything. Um, well, the question is, I guess, was it regarded as as critically acclaimed then? I mean, kind of, yeah. Dang, Yeah, son. he was, like well known in his time Um, so we're not we're not talking about a picasso here if you've listened to our first episode well yeah i mean you're not there's a lot of artists that like weren't appreciated in their time and never sold a painting or were terribly broke when they died like that like us (laughs) just (laughs) wow i'm kidding okay not terribly broke well (laughs) also not dead also not dead (laughs) yet i'm saying when we die Uh, maybe okay okay but anyway no this was considered basically it was considered a masterpiece as soon as he painted it i can't imagine the pressure that would be on 
after you paint something like that to be to to duplicate that success with another piece right okay so i would encourage everyone if you haven't already been googling along with us to definitely look this one up it's called the ghent altarpiece g-h-e-n-t um it's sometimes referred to as the adoration of the mystic lamb um but we'll talk about why in a moment so, I was going to make my guesses. I'm glad you clarified that we're going to talk about it. I'll keep those to myself. Okay. So it is an altarpiece uh, painted on panels. And um, it is a piece that has wings that fold up. Kind of like a trifold board from high school. Exactly. Think of your science fair project. <laughs> I'd rather not. But yes, that same concept. Um, and it was painted... Uh, for St. John's Parish in Ghent. And it is, well, that that church is now a cathedral called St. Saint Bavo's, B-A-V-O. Um, and this was painted between 1426 and 1432. Um, it was actually begun by his older brother, Hubert. Um, and scholars are unsure about how much Hubert did and how much was Van Jan Van Eyck. So was his was Hubert a renowned or successful painter in his own right? Then I mean he was, um, but we just don't really have a lot of record well, so of he, what he specifically did. So he wasn't successful enough to be say on a podcast about art history. <laughs> we don't have enough material to okay. do a whole episode about him. This is pretty much this his claim to fame. So the answer is no then. <laughs> I mean, he, he was may... he was successful enough to have gotten this commission. He may have been successful enough to make a living off of his painting, but right. was it successful enough to be uh live beyond his name? I mean, time? how do you define success? <laughs> anyway. So it was started by his older brother. Again, nobody knows exactly how much each brother contributed. I think he painted the wings that look like watermelons. That's not that's not a thing. The the wings on the closed it's a whole never mind. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. They look green and then they have a red inside with a white rind. It looks like a watermelon. I still don't know what you're talking about. It, symbolism is what you make of it. We were talking <laughs> earlier about how in the first painting, we don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that's interesting about art, and I think we've talked about it before, is that you can kind of pull the things you want from pieces, uh, not necessarily based on what the art artist was intending. Sure. Even like music, you talk about like poetry yeah. um, may mean something to the artist, but isn't necessarily supposed to mean that to everybody who right. sees that piece. Sure. Anyhow. Okay. Watermelon wings. So because this is, um, oh, and Mike, I might have done yours backwards, but uh, because this is kind of a trifold board situation, um, we'll, we'll talk about each piece. So we're going to talk about first the open view. Um, so it is divided, <clears throat> the upper level has three enthroned figures. Um, God is in the middle. And then Mary and John the Baptist are on either side. 
So God has a hand raised in blessing. And you can see, once again, it's painted with amazing realism. You can see, like, the veins in his hand bulging and, like, hairs on his skin. It's Mm. just incredible. Uh, There is sort of a brocade pattern behind him that is um, pelicans and vines. And that's supposed to symbolize the blood that Jesus shed because, well, the vines, obviously, they produce grapes, which makes wine. Oh, blood that makes wine. sense, yeah. Um, the pelicans, this is really interesting. In medieval times, pelicans were obviously erroneously thought to pierce their own skin to feed their young in times of famine. What? I don't know. I don't know where they got that idea, but the idea that they he would they would shed their own blood to feed their children is the idea there. So pelicans equal Jesus. I thought maybe they were like vampire pelicans who drank blood. Not bro. That makes way, not more sense. (laughs) It makes way different sense. There's a few things in here that's like, oh, this was medieval logic. So Gotta love that medieval logic. So hold on. Um, So he is wearing the Pope's triple tiara. um, And at his feet... Uh, there's this incredibly intricate crown. Um, if you want to Google just the crown itself, it's amazing. Um, Is it supposed to kind of represent like the thorn, crown of thorns that Christ was put on Christ's head in scripture? Or? I mean, you know, there's debate but really um, what I what I read about is that it's the symbol of like earthly secular power. Hmm. And like even that, even this beautifully painted crown is at the feet of God. He's not even wearing it on his head. Like it's below him even to wear that, you know. So there are pearls on the crown that he painted in just three breath strokes. (laughs) There's a dark body and then a white lower edge to show the reflection and then a dollop of paint that catches the, the reflection. And that's how he made all of the pearls, which is, I thought was really cool. Um, There's a vanishing point um, of the painting lies somewhere behind God's head. And that idea, that kind of perspective idea, wasn't really known to other artists for years. (laughs) Um, So vanishing point sounds, A, like a sci-fi thing, but for us less educated in the arts oh so it is the point okay so if you're thinking about um say a landscape just think of like a plane um the vanishing point is sort of the part where your eyes go to where the horizon is and where sort of all the perspective lines lead to right does that make sense I mean, I know what it means. I'm very well educated. <laughs> but, yeah. so It's if, the part where, the point where, if you're thinking, like, you can see far into the distance, that's the point where it would go. Kind of where you lose the, your vision can reach. Yeah, yeah. As far as it can go. Yeah, that idea. So, most other artists weren't employing the idea of a vanishing point 
um, until three years after this painting was yeah. created. So, I mean, there are several moments sort of in um, studying about the Ghent altarpiece where you see that he was kind of a, ahead of his contemporaries in Italy as far as sort of some of the artistic techniques that he understood. Was it him or his brother, though? Maybe his brother was ahead of his time. It's probably him. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, and so then Mary is shown in the Gothic style where she was shown as the, uh, in Revelations, it talks about the queen of heaven with 12 stars on her head for a crown. So that's how she's shown in this image. And, um, she and John the Baptist, uh, it's interesting because they're in other pieces of this time are usually shown in what's called intercessio which is where they are like praying for the souls of usually the donor the person who commissioned the piece Mm. or or gave the money for the church to have the piece created intercessio i'm assuming leads to the word intercession Intercession. right that makes sense exactly so praying on someone else's behalf to god um but as you can see that's not really happening here um typically both sittings right typically john the baptist um is shown either in the act of baptizing someone or praying for someone Mm. but in this piece both mary and john are just shown as sort of figures of the faith yeah um mary looks like she's reading john also has a book open but he's not looking at it he's Right, and and that's interesting um, because normally John the Baptist was shown uh, with a lamb, which was a symbol for Christ. Mm. Um, and so we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but um, a lot of times saints were painted with what was called hagiographic icons, which is usually like the most related symbol a lot of times especially for like the martyrs a lot of times it's like a symbol of their death or like the thing their cause um, is kind of an icon so like nowadays you think of the icons that are in the different cathedrals where like the we were in new york city and they have was it mother Teresa's something of mother Teresa's. oh yeah no not really like that um it's just kind of um an object basically that, that symbolizes represents. that yeah. saint so are both mary and i know john the baptist is a saint mm-hmm. and mary is as well well not not in the not in the traditional sense of saint yeah Pete. yeah okay. um okay so john's hagiographic icon is usually the lamb he doesn't have it in this case um, but the reason we know it's John the Baptist is he's wearing the hair shirt that is described in the gospel. Super comfortable hair shirt. Sounds awful. Uh, then Mary is at this time usually depicted with the Christ child yep. or sometimes with angels like the Annunciation where they announced Jesus' birth, foretold his birth. Um, but again... She's just as a biblical figure in this in this imagery. It is interesting, though, if you want to get into like some theological discussions with this. If you look at uh, it within scripture, 
for those of you who don't know, Christ refers to himself as the word. Does uh, Christ or is it one of the disciples who talks about him being the word? Uh, anyhow. But either way, John. she's reading a, a, a book. If it is indeed the scripture, it's almost like holding the Christ child in that theological idea, which is interesting. Maybe Van Eyck was just super deep in theological. I mean, it's possible. Listen, um, I don't know if I said this already, but there are 20 panels and 26 scenes in this altarpiece. So I'm sure you could go for days and not get to all the symbolism. I mean, for example, um, there are angels on either side of Mary and John the Baptist who are playing music. First of all, you can see they kind of, the angels who are singing kind of have pained expressions. And I guess their different expressions are supposed to show that they're like singing in harmony in different pitches, but they look like they're in pain. That's because serving at church is a pain. Um, Just kidding. But even the tiles under their feet, um, they're called majolica tiles. Um, and there are even symbols in the tiles that they're standing on, which I'm not even going to go into all of that, but thank you. There, it's layers upon layers and even my new, and the, like, there's one part of it that they said like, oh, well, this was like a political thing that was happening at the time, but probably you wouldn't notice. And most of the general public wouldn't have been able to look at the painting for that long. So it was really probably just a personal reference for Van Eyck. So it's like, there's that level of stuff going on. Okay, so then we also have um, figures of Adam and Eve on either side. That was going to be my guess because yes. they are covering themselves. They're no-no bits and just leaves. Right. So... Um, first of all, they're nearly life-size because of the size of this Dang. piece. Um, and now that you said no-no bits, um, in 1781, um, whoever was in possession of this, pa- this piece at the time replaced those panels with exact copies that had bare skins covering the naughty bits because that was <laughs> too much skin. So- <laughs> Lord knows, nobody needs to see any chesticles around here. <laughs> Get those things covered exactly. up. But, I mean, this just Adam and Eve alone are notable because this is the first time in all of art history where a nude figure is rendered uh, as realistic rather than, like, the idealized human form. Mm. Like, they're just, like, real people. Adam has nostril hairs and... <laughs> they both kind of have belly like they're not idealized i will say adam does not have a dad bod which is what i would hope for <laughs> would make me i mean feel he's better. not pudgy but no but he's, look at those muscles on his legs he got some mu- muscular legs right okay. there he's at least a runner <laughs> he does some running but he it's not like adam has like a six-pack and like no. giant biceps and all the pectoral like he's like a dude just you a know? guy. Sure. And and she's she's a lady. Yeah. Um again, she's kind of got that pear shape going on, but that was that was actually kind of preferred. So but still, I mean, she's not like painted she's got like a mole. It's like she's it's not like she's painted as like the most beautiful woman who ever lived. I wonder if hmm, interesting because getting in, into the weeds. Um 
within scripture it talks about uh christ not being like a notable beautiful person he was like an average joe yeah and so i wonder if that is kind of van eyck's looking at this painting just what we've talked about so far makes me think that maybe van eyck uh at least was familiar with some of this stuff within scripture Probably. Um, I mean, there's a lot in here. Yeah. So um, Eve is holding a lemon rather than the apple that we normally see to symbolize the forbidden fruit. Notable line that uh, the Bible doesn't actually say it was an apple. It was just a fruit. So nobody really knows. So that's kind of an interesting idea of having a lemon instead of an apple. Um, And there are, you can maybe... I don't know if you can tell from the image, um, but underneath on sort of the frame part, um, it says underneath them, um, Adam thrusts us into death and Eve has afflicted us with death. So kind of talking about how the fall of man. Hey, you know what? That's nice because at least he's not blaming it on Eve like most of old uh, theology, art and stuff was always like, it's the woman's fault. Yeah. Even though it says Adam was right there yeah. with the woman. It's yeah. nice that they acknowledge, he, Van Eyck acknowledges that Adam is also to blame for all, it's both of their faults. Sure, sure. We don't have to get into all the theology right <laughs> Sorry. now. Sorry. I mean, it's kind of hard because they're kind of intermingled. But, right. Okay. So, moving on. The bottom five panels um, are a single landscape that is a procession of historical and biblical figures. So the center panel, um, there is a lamb on the altar and who is bleeding into a chalice. Hmm. And then there are angels surrounding that. And then there are the confessors, the martyrs, the saints, prophets, and patriarchs of the Old Testament and New Testament apostles. And then... Moving out from there, you have judges, crusaders, hermits, and pilgrims on the outer four panels. So just everybody? Yeah. The holy pilgrim, this was something that I thought was interesting. The holy pilgrims um, who are in the bottom right, um, you can see St. Christopher is the dude in a red cloak, and he is giant. This is, even though I grew up Catholic, this is not something that I knew that uh, he was considered basically a giant. He was like supposedly like 6'8 or something. (laughs) Um, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if that's like lore or if that's a real thing. David and Goliath, he's like Goliath in this situation. Yeah, maybe. Um, But he is the patron saint of travelers. Um, and then in there also is St. James, who's the saint, patron saint of pilgrims. These um, things make sense. Yeah. So in the far left panel uh, is supposed to be the righteous judges. And this panel, I, I haven't mentioned this yet, but the Ghent altarpiece has changed hands so many times. Um, it is has been the most stolen piece of work in art history it's been stolen seven different times um and there is at one point um both the just judges this bottom left and john the baptist were stolen 
and the thief ended up returning John the Baptist as like a sign of goodwill but the just judges the panel that's there now is actually a replica they never found the real the actual true Van Eyck panel there's something about the irony of the guy stealing something and then of the judges and keeping the judge (laughs) only god can judge me okay i don't know what that means oh boy um but there amongst the judges there is a man in a dark turban oh look at that yep i think we found waldo (laughs) um and he is actually another reason other than just the turban that they think this is Van Eyck is that he's the only other human figure in the entire piece other than God that looks out at the viewer. Huh. So it's kind of like a wink. <laughs> Cheeky guy, ain't he? Yeah. Um, in this piece as a whole, there are over 100 figures. And it's notable because every single person, well, I mean, there is some people that are counted just because there's like a hat or something so there's a little bit to be said there but um everyone has a unique face whereas in sort of previous years um you wouldn't necessarily be able to see the painting of a person and like know them if you saw them on the street it would be kind of more generic kind of faces but these are all very specific all with individually painted hairs. <laughs> I mean, you can, it said you can see like the hairs on the horses, even. So, this isn't like a Willy Wonka copy paste kind of. <laughs> Willy Wonka? Yeah. So, hold on. Let me, <laughs> let me explain. This makes sense. The, uh, the one of the people, I can't think of the word. Uh, the, what do they call the, the people who, Oompa Loompas? The Oompa Loompas. Oh my gosh. Michael Andrew. What? You did not just compare Van Eyck's figures to Oompa Loompas. No. Well, hear me out. <laughs> I'm saying in there, like, uh, there was one where they used multiple times. Oh, in the newer version. Yes. Okay. I understand now. He couldn't copy it's and paste. He still... had to, like, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. All Van right. Eyck, forgive me. Okay. Um, so another thing about this particular part of the painting, um, is that he uses the technique to make what's farthest away look hazy. Uh, so atmosphere Mm -hmm. in the way. And again, that's another one of those things that wasn't widely adopted until a generation later. Like Da Vinci was employing this, but he hmm. wasn't until several years ago, later. Yeah. Um, or a bit later, not a bit ago. It's fine. You knew what I meant. It's fine. Um, and so the procession all centers on what I've read as the idealized image of the Christian mass because it's the Lamb of God on the altar. Yeah. Um, and historically, up to this point, the lamb was typically depicted holding a banner, which was like a symbol of the resurrection. Whereas in this piece, it's just a sheep. Like, it just looks realistic. Yeah. It's not like, I don't know, cartoonish at all. It's just 
a sheep. How would a lamb hold a banner? In its mouth. Grip it by the husk. <laughs> Get out. Um, also in the center panel um, is the fountain of the water of life. Um, there are angels around the lamb and they are holding the instruments of Christ's passion, the cross, the crown of thorns, and the column at which he was flogged. Hmm. And... Um, the angels' robes resemble the robes of the altar boys that would have been performing mass in front of the altarpiece. Wow. So, um, and then the other really cool thing about this is that um, because of the where the the altar in the painting is placed, that so there's a part in the Catholic mass where um, the host, the the Eucharistic bread and the chalice of the wine are held up above the priest's head, and that visually would have been perfectly aligned with the lamb on the altar hmm. as the, the mass was performed in front of this. So hmm. it was like really using that space and really incorporating what was happening in the mass into what he... So it's very intentional. Like not only is it very specific and very realistic, but... Very intentional with what he was painting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's so much symbolism. I'm just going to skip some of this because it's, it goes, you can go real deep on this. If you're interested at all in this, I would encourage you to read because there's, it's just crazy. Or you can just email us at halfwaydosen at gmail.com and I'll make Sarah send you her notes. Oh, I could definitely do that. Okay. So... Um, just above the lamb on the altar, um, it's sort of right at the top of that panel, you can see is a dove, um, which means that God the Father and the Holy Spirit as a dove and the lamb, which is a symbol of Jesus Christ, are all visually lined up mm -hmm. right there in the middle. Um, so I thought that was... That's very cool. intentional, very interesting. Right. <clears throat> and um, just another note, the plants and the trees and the bushes in the landscape were painted with enough accuracy as to be identifiable by a botanist. Like, Jeez. very specific. And not only that, but there are trees and plants that aren't from that area. And so they don't have any actual, like, documentation that Van Eyck traveled to some of these places but they think maybe he went to the holy land because of how specific some of these things are and um so there's a reference um in revelations about uh the new jerusalem that's being formed so how you know heaven on earth um when when Jesus comes back, they think this is like just another reference to that because there's so many plants in this area and they couldn't actually in real life all inhabit that same space like it would have to be like <laughs> heaven on earth for all of those plants to be in the same space maybe he just had like one of his friends bring him back some leaves you know like in in middle school when you had to <laughs> did you ever have to do a leaf collection <laughs> no he just had his friend do, hey, while you're out, bring me some leaves. And also, so I get an idea. very specifically, sketch the tree that they came from. 
Okay, so maybe, <laughs> maybe not, not exactly. Um, so it talks about how they're in the distance there. You can see there are buildings, um, which are like part of the quote unquote New Jerusalem. Um, two of the buildings are identifiable. One is St. Nicholas Church in Ghent. So that would have been identifiable to the people of the community. The other one is Utrecht Cathedral, which was in a rival city. And so some people have suggested that when it the piece was being cleaned in 1550, that whoever was cleaning it may have added that in because <laughs> he was from that rival city. <laughs> that... <laughs> Let me clean this up here. <laughs> I have a lot of feeling. Being a sports fan, I have a lot of feelings about that. And I understand. I can't imagine Van Eyck, if he would have seen, if, if that is true... Can't imagine him being like, hold on, they did what? Mm. Yeah. I'd be a little irked. Yeah. Okay, so that's the inside. If you close up the panels. Closing. Um, there's a lot going on here, too. The central scene um, of the upper panels is the annunci- Annunciation, where the angel Gabriel is announcing to Mary that she's going to bear the Son of God. Mary looks a lot older in that painting than she does in the inside. Well. Van Eyck did a bad job. Oh. He's a bad painter. Okay. Just kidding. Um, the room where the scene takes place is divided up by the panels. But um, you can kind of see, well, I don't know if you can actually tell, but um, it's painted to suggest that the divisions in the panels are actually architectural elements. Like they cast shadows on the floor. Mm, yeah. Um, so it's really incorporating the piece, <laughs> I don't know, the frame it's, into the piece itself. It's incredibly well thought out and uh, very intentional with the use of space. And yeah, it's right. really cool. Yeah. Um, you can see a Flemish town outside the window in that room. Below that, um, it is two, it looks like two stone statues. Yep. Those are um, John the Baptist and John the Apostle. Yeah, right? those are two different people, correct. St. John. Um, both St. John. Um, but that style, that black and white monochrome, is called grisaille. And um, it's used frequently by artists to suggest stone. And I would say used very effectively yeah. in this painting. If you are looking at a, a picture of the closed Ghent altarpiece, it looks like stone, especially compared to the two next to it, which are not supposed to be stone, I'm assuming. Right. They're supposed to be depicted as actual people. The contrast is strikingly different. Right. So um, now that you mentioned them, um, the two people on the bottom are actually the donors. So it's uh, Jos Vid and his wife um and uh, once again van eyck painted them quote as god made them without any kind of idealization warts and all sort of portrait realism here and um that shows not only van eyck's skill to show people as they actually were but also sort of the humility of the donors to be shown without <laughs> as i read described as artistic plastic surgery <laughs> <laughs> and right. I liked that. Um, but, you know, warts and all, there they are. 
So the two Johns um, would have been um, the patron saints of the two people. So his and her patron saints. Interesting. Personal patron saints. I didn't realize that was a thing. But... Yeah. Okay. Um, so the lighting in this closed view actually also corresponds to the actual windows that the of the chapel that mm. this piece was displayed in. So again, using that space specifically. So it was painted for a very specific place in the yeah, cathedral. Yeah, itself. a specific chapel. And this is the kind of crazy thing. So the chapel that it was created for is actually too small for the wings to be opened up fully to like flat. So they were constantly pushed out toward the viewer if it was open. So part of that was kind of Van Eyck's maybe cheekiness, maybe just confidence as an artist, but to say like, this is not just painted on this wall. You know, this is on panel and to give it that like three dimensionality. So it's like coming out toward the viewer. um, And it just kind of makes it that much more dynamic. It's really interesting. Um, and it has the grandeur of a wall painting because it's huge, like we've talked about. Um, and because the previous, um, sort of most famous way of painting was frescoes, which is plaster and they paint tempera paint on top of that. Um, it just doesn't have not only the kind of dynamic look that oil paint that we've already talked about the depth and richness that oil paint has but also it has like this three-dimensionality that um, Hmm. comes out toward the viewer the angel is speaking words to mary um it's written in latin Um, this is back up to the top very oh sorry yes uh saying hail mary full of grace the lord salutes you i guess is how it's translated um and Mary responds back in Latin. Um, She says, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. But it's written in reverse. And it's because the response was not intended for the angel or even for the viewer, but for God. (laughs) So he wrote it backwards. And that kind of became sort of a thing that was was done is writing it in reverse Hmm. there is a decanter on the windowsill this is more of that lovely medieval logic that we were talking about so there's a decanter on the windowsill and this is a symbol for mary's virginity um, because the argument went that if a ray of light could pass through the glass without breaking it then mary could have gotten pregnant while maintaining her virginity the ray of light did not break the glass, even though it went through the glass. That so is... Mary is still a virgin, even though the son of it. I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot of like symbols like that. I, we don't have time to go into all of them, but there are a lot of that kind of like medieval logic of like. Ta-da! It's like, that doesn't make any sense to our ears, but... It's like looking at medieval medicine where you just... You hear about the things they did, and you're just like, yeah. no, that obviously doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Um, But 
as we've talked about, um, this whole thing is incredibly realistic. Um, and ahead of his time, there is a realism movement that didn't happen for another 400 years. And Dang. so um, you can really see Van Eyck's level of skill. Uh, you can see his the detail work that he's done on such a large piece is basically unprecedented. Uh, usually that kind of detail work was only reserved for smaller portraits or illuminated manuscripts. So when they would um, artistically uh, paint the Gospels, basically, um, and it, w- it was just never done on that kind of large scale. Where people could like get up close and really see the detail. Right. Um, it's kind of considered the fulcrum between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance because it has some arti- artistic uh, characteristics of like the Gothic period, but it is also very much of the Renaissance. So it's kind of kind of toes that line between the two. Mm. Um, it's also interesting because most paintings of this period. Um, if they're religious, illustrate a specific passage in the scripture. Whereas this kind of conglomerates a lot of different things and kind of puts them together. It's not like you can look at one verse of scripture and say like, oh, that's what this is of. I mean, the Annunciation is a little bit like that. But as at least as far as the mystic lamb is concerned... You know, it's like revelations and the gospels and all these different things coming together. It's much much more uh, an amalgamation of the scripture versus a specific point in the scriptures. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. So then um, after 600 years of almost constant movement, it now finally resides in the church that it was actually created for. Oh. So, um, where was it before that? So, oh, you, you're talking about like moving around. I thought you meant like yeah. opening and closing, but you're talking oh, about no. moving around in yeah. the world. I see. Yeah, like I said, it was stolen seven times. After the French Revolution, the altarpiece was one of several that were plundered from Belgium and taken to Paris. Um, and then after the French were defeated at the Battle of Waterloo, it was returned. Um, the wings were pawned by the Diocese of Ghent for like 200 pounds and then um because they didn't like collect on it uh they were sold to a collector who then uh sold those to the king of prussia and then they were exhibited in berlin and then they were almost they were damaged by fire in 1822 and so then they took adam and eve and sent them to a museum in brussels and during world war one the panels were taken by German forces, and then in the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was forced to return the panels, which really made them upset. And so, like, the Ghent altarpiece, if you know anything about World War II and Hitler and his whole idea for, like, the, uh, I forget what they called it, the... Um, this idea that the Nazi to... art museum, yeah. basically, and he was going to collect all of the best pieces in the world. And that was, like his focal point like he had to have the ghent altarpiece that was like the his 
number one on his list. And um, it was it's kind of crazy. If you've seen or read the book, uh, actually, I don't know if the book is also called it, but the movie uh, Monuments Men about right. the, the art collectors who go to save and recover um, pieces stolen by the Nazis. Um, the Ghent altarpiece is hmm. featured in there. It eventually found in a salt mine yeah. um, where the salt kind of did a little bit of damage hmm. and they had to restore it a little bit. But um, it's a crazy story. Yeah. And this piece, goodness, I would love to see it someday. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, after we become rich and famous, we'll just take a trip over to Belgium. Oh, is this trip the one that's going to make us broke so that we're <laughs> terribly broke when we die? <laughs> we already got there. It's just going to make broker. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so just a few things to wrap up. Uh, this was the first work to implement um such intricate detail on a monumental scale like we've talked about um such naturalistic details uh the first unidealized human nude like we talked about um the aerial perspective that vanishing point in the distance where everything kind of gets hazy no one really had done that before um, and individually rendered faces in such a large crowd. Dampa Lopez. Um, exactly. Um, and he was working basically 400 years ahead of his time. So is there any record of how long this piece took to create? Yeah, um, it was started in 1426 and was finished in 1434. Wow. I haven't worked on any one thing for eight years that's crazy i didn't even go to school for eight years much less do one thing for eight years i mean don't get me wrong i tried to go to school for eight years (laughs) but uh yeah that's crazy so there are two strips of silver mounted on the rear of the two donor panels and this was only discovered in 1823. I'm not sure why. Um, but it says, The painter Hubert Van Eyck, than whom none was greater, began this work. Jan, his brother, second in art, completed it at the request of Jos Vid uh, on the 6th of May, 1432. He begs you by means of this verse to take care of what came into being. So um, he he does credit his brother with being the the greater Van Eyck, but who knows how much of that was just him being respectful or yeah. how much Hubert actually did. I mean, we have remaining paintings by Van Eyck, so we know that he was a legit painter and knew what he was doing and was was good. But, but maybe most of this was Hugo, and so we're giving all the Hubert. credit. You know what? Hugo, Hubert. Tomorrow, <laughs> we tomorrow. call him Hugo. I call him Hugo. <laughs> My buddy Hugo. Uh, but maybe Hubert did more of this than we think, and, I mean, who knows. But, I mean, based on the fact that Hubert wasn't as well-known as Van Eyck, leads me to believe that probably Van Eyck did more of this and mm-hmm. was being kind at, in 
shouting out his brother. Sure. I mean, so I work for my brother. I get it. I kind of feel like <laughs> that when he gives me a shout out. Yeah. Um, that's that's pretty much it. And that's, hey. I mean, that's, that's not kind of... it. There are so many more layers, but uh, I think that's all that we have time for. But we've gone well over time, so yeah. we're just going to go ahead and cut it there. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening. Um, if you get a chance, give us a follow on Instagram or you can email us at halfwaydocent at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, share it with your friend if you like us. Yeah. Share it with your friend if you don't like us. Share it with the guy next to you on the train. I don't care. I mean, maybe don't do that. I mean, share it with whoever. Don't be weird. No. Uh, we're not doing this to, to, <laughs> other than we just enjoy talking to each other and yeah. Hope that maybe you enjoy learning about some art too. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if you want to subscribe, yeah, or rate and review, I've heard that that is helpful to make people see it. Sure. Um, but you know, only if you want to. Yeah, I don't really care. It, it, we don't really care. Uh, anyhow, but thank you to uh, my girl, my whiskey, and me for the use of their songs at the beginning and the end of this show. Uh, give them a follow on the social medias get out and see them if you can buy their music they're great Uh, we love them a lot and they just had a kid so shout out to their fresh baby yeah fresh baby out there um happy for them so yeah give them a follow and hey i think that's it for us for this week so get Mm -hmm. out and see something out there go to a museum and remember it's just art